0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 3. 1st Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read for us from verses 1 to 13. So Let's read together. The saying is trustworthy. not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve, as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, I actually think it's better translated, the women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that song and the reminder that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that the church is built upon him and that he is the head of the church. And that in his wisdom, he has given to the church officers, elders and deacons to help um, fulfill what the church is called to do. And I pray that as we look at this portion of scripture this morning, that you would just help us to understand, give us an attentiveness to your word. This passage is maybe not as exciting as other passages that we often read in the scripture or look at, but these, passage, these verses are extremely important for the life of a church and for all of us to be aware of what it means to have men as elders and both men and women as deacons to help us function and be the church of Jesus Christ, to honor you as the body of Christ. And so we ask that you would bless this time now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thus far, we've seen in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul's concern for doctrinal purity in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we saw Paul's concern in regards to how the church conducts itself when it gathers as the body of Christ. He's concerned about what they should be devoted to and also how both men and women should behave and relate to one another. And now in chapter 3, Paul turns his focus to church officers. And this makes sense because it's primarily church officers that will be responsible for doctrinal purity and making sure that the church is orderly and operating according to God's ways. Now the New Testament has two offices in the church. That is, elders or overseers, the same as two words used interchangeably, and that of deacons. And Paul addresses both both of these offices here in 1 Timothy 3. Elders, overseers, or pastors are used interchangeably in the scriptures. Um, Pastors are the elders or overseers of the church, or the elders or overseers are the pastors of the church. So in Acts 20, 17, uh, the Apostle Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself before he heads to Jerusalem. And this is what we read. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. And called the elders of the church to come to him. And then a little further down, he begins instructing the elders of Ephesus. And this is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So elders overseers in the scriptures are referring to the same thing. So we're gonna look at both this morning. That is both deacons and elders. We're gonna look at the qualifications of both, and then we're gonna think about the implications of what this means for the church. So let's begin with the overseers. Now, I'm just going to, all we're gonna do is we're just gonna go for each qualification. There's gonna be a little Bible study looking at each qualification in this passage. So here in chapter 3, Paul begins with another trustworthy saying. Now, several times in Timothy and Titus, Paul has these trustworthy sayings. We've already seen one in 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And here we have Paul's second trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires... A noble task. Paul suggests that the role of a pastor is a noble task. It's an honorable calling. It's not an easy task, but it is noble because of what it entails. It's to give oneself to caring for the covenant people of God. It's to invest one's life into spiritually nurturing God's spiritual people with his word. This is a noble thing. But it's also not easy. Uh, Paul alludes to this in 1 Timothy 5.17 where he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There is a laborious element to preaching and teaching. It's not meant to be easy. Studying God's word, shepherding God's people is not for the faint of heart. It's hard work, but it's noble work because it's work ordained by God for the sanctification and the perseverance of his people. And Paul says that the one who aspires to this aspires a noble thing. Now, quite often, um, we we tend to see ambition as a sinful thing. For someone to have ambition to aspire to being a pastor, uh, it seems contrary to humility and servanthood. But Paul says here that this is a good thing. It's a noble thing. How? Well, to aspire to something is good or bad depending on one's motives. You can aspire to be, be the Prime Minister of Canada with good motives or bad motives. If one aspires to the office of an overseer with a motive to gain self-glory and have power over people, then of course that is evil. But if one aspires to this role because his desire is to serve God's people and to see God's people conform into the image and likeness of Christ, then of course this is a good and noble thing. This is a high calling, and it shouldn't be taken lightly, but it's a good thing if you aspire to this noble task. And if you do aspire to this office, you shouldn't hide those aspirations. You should inform your elders or your pastors that you have this desire. It doesn't guarantee that you'll become an elder. There are other factors as well, but it's good for us as elders to know that you actually aspire to this. And here's why. Paul tells Timothy to entrust to worthy men the things he was taught. In 2 Timothy 2, 1-2, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul tells us that aspiring to the office of overseer is a noble task. Now after he makes this trustworthy statement pertaining to overseers, He then provides qualifications for an overseer. There are requirements in order for someone to serve as an elder in a local church. So two things. If you aspire to being an elder, you ought to examine your life according to these qualifications and strive to become the kind of person that is described here. Also, If you're a member, you should be familiar with these qualifications so that you never let a man serve as an elder in your church who doesn't meet these qualifications. As members, you have a responsibility, a role to play in who actually has spiritual authority over you. So, we're going to go through the qualifications of an elder and then also the qualifications of a deacon. And then I'm going to explain the distinctions between the two, and then we're going to think about the implications for us as a church and as individual Christians. So first, the qualifications of elders. So the first thing Paul says in verse 2 is that an overseer must be above reproach. This really, in in some ways, is, is a summary of the entire list. And to be above reproach is to be a man of integrity. It doesn't mean that he's sinless, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have flaws, but overall his life has integrity. His private life is, for the most part, consistent with his public life. When he sins, he's quick to repent. When he sins against a fellow Christian, he's eager to reconcile. He keeps short accounts with God and others. I like the way Calvin puts it, There will be no one found among men that is free from every vice. But it is one thing to be blemished with ordinary vices, which do not hurt the reputation, because they are found in men of the highest excellence. And another thing to have a disgraceful name or to be stained with any baseness. Secondly, an overseer must be the husband of one wife. The idea here isn't that it's okay for a Christian who's not an elder to have more than one wife. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, what Paul's referring to is faithfulness to one's wife. He is faithful to his vows and to his wife, which makes sense if he's to be a man of integrity. And this is why when a pastor has committed adultery, it's essential for a church to remove him from his position. He has disqualified himself from such a position. He's no longer a man of integrity. He has broken his vows. Now, I think it's also important to say that I don't believe this disqualifies a single man from serving as an elder. A single man can serve as an elder as well, so long as he is a man committed to the pursuit of sexual purity, just as a married man is committed to the pursuit of sexual purity in his marriage. But the emphasis here is that in order for a man to be qualified for the office of an overseer, an elder, he must be a man who is committed and faithful to his marriage and his wife. Now, the next three qualifications you could summarize as self-mastery, self-mastery. The idea is really this. How can a man rule over others if he's unable to rule over himself? And so he lists sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. So first, sober-minded. This word can be also translated temperate. The idea here is that of, of mental sobriety. It carries with it, with it the idea of self-control, a balanced judgment. It, it's, it's freedom from rash behavior. It captures a person, as Strack says, who is stable, circumspect, self-restraint, and clear-headed. See, pastors sometimes have to face very complex issues, often pertaining to people's lives. And this requires that they be emotionally and mentally stable. Just think about the last few years with COVID. Imagine if your pastors were not stable. Also, he says, self-controlled which can also be translated as prudent or sensible. It's similar to temperate. It emphasizes self-control, especially in relation to having good judgment, discretion, and common sense. As the motto goes, although common sense, common sense is not all that common. A pastor needs to have discernment and be as objective as possible when faced with difficult situations. And this is why, dare I say, it's not enough to simply be a well-intentioned person. It's not enough to simply be good in order to be an elder. You need discernment. You need to have good judgment on when to speak and when not to speak, on when to be gentle and when to be firm. The last word under the summary of self-mastery is respectable. This is someone who is prudent. Someone who is orderly and well-behaved, he lives in such a way that he's considered respectable by others. An elder can't expect people to follow him if people don't respect him. That's pretty obvious, right? And these three words capture what I think is the idea of self-mastery. He has control over himself. Now, the next qualification is that of hospitality. Hospitality, according to the scriptures, is a very clear Expression of Christian love. Paul tells Christians in Romans 12 13 to pursue hospitality. Peter exhorts believers in 1 Peter 4 9 to be hospitable to one another without complaining. And of course, a passage very familiar is Hebrews 13:2, that tells us to not neglect showing hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some have entertained angels. Unaware. Hospitality has with it the idea of welcoming the stranger. In the ancient world, when Christians would travel, it wasn't like there were hotels you could simply check into. You would often depend upon Christians in such and such a town to take you in. Let's say you were a traveling preacher, for example. And elders needed to lead by example in this. But it's also more than just entertaining the stranger. That's why Peter tells us to be hospitable to one another. A lack of hospitality may be a sign of a selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. In order for an elder to really have an impact in people's lives, he must be hospitable. He must be willing to open his home to others. If the local church's elders are inhospitable, then the local church will most likely be, be inhospitable and indifferent. Now, I know that I haven't had everyone here in our home yet, but many of you have been in our home. And I want to say this to you. One of the reasons why we have people in our home is, well, one, it's, it's required of me as an elder, but also because I want people to know that they're loved and cared for. There is something that happens When someone is welcomed into a home, it changes the dynamic, it changes the relationship of people. You're coming into our place of privacy and security. But also, we do this because we want to set an example of what being hospitable looks like. In other words, if I have invited you to my home and you have been in my home, part of the reason why I have done that is to say to you, go and do likewise. You see, our hope, our church, will be known for its hospitality, that the members of Royal York would go out of their way to have fellow members, but also strangers, in their home. Imagine, imagine if we were all doing this. Now, I also want to say that there are many of you who do regularly practice hospitality, and I commend you for that. It's not easy. Hospitality is hard work. Now, I should also say this. This is an example where a wife can sometimes disqualify a man from serving as an elder. For example, if you're married to a woman who refuses to have people in her home, it probably would make it difficult for you to meet the qualifications that are required here. I'm just being honest about that. But I would also say this, that sometimes being married to a specific woman may help in you meeting the qualifications. Gracie has made me a far more more hospitable person. She's pushed me out of my comfort zone. She's helped me meet this qualification. So if you desire to be an elder, then you need to practice hospitality in your Christian life. But I would also say that as a Christian, whether you're an elder or not, you should strive to practice hospitality in your life. Now, the next qualification is that of able to teach. Now, this is the only qualification that has to do with competency, not character. An overseer must be an apt teacher. The fact that it's the only ability qualification amongst moral qualifications, in my opinion, demonstrates the centrality of teaching in the church but also the focus of an elder's role. This is the primary calling of overseers. They do other things, but this must take precedent over all other things, the teaching and expounding of God's word. In Acts 20, Paul instructs the elders to shepherd the flock among them, and the primary way in which elders do this is through the preaching of God's word. Now, being able to teach doesn't mean that one is required to be an outstanding orator or a gifted teacher. It means he must have a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and an ability to communicate. In Titus, Paul expands further on what he means by able to teach, where he says in Titus nine, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and he needs to be able to correct those who contradict truth. Which means if you desire to be an elder, you need to be a student of God's word. You need to pick up some books and read and have a robust theological understanding of the truths of the Christian faith. See, the spiritual well-being of the people of God depends on the faithful expounding of the scriptures, which means elders must be able to handle and explain God's word and defend the truths of the Christian faith against falsehood. Now, the next qualification, he says, is not a drunkard. Paul is condemning the wrong use of alcohol here. Pastors should not be consumed or overindulgent with alcohol. Now, he's not requiring complete abstinence, but proper use. Drunkenness is evidence of a lack of self-control, and much of the qualifications requires Self control. See, this goes back to the theme of self mastery. He shall not be mastered by what he drinks. You should not tolerate elders who are given over to drunkenness, because a pastor addicted to alcohol will leave a wake of destruction in his path, both in his family and in the life of the church. Now, the next three qualifications fit together where Paul says, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And the focus, of course, is one's temper and temperament. Not violent, the idea here is being a a pugnacious man. This is a man who is bad-tempered, irritable, an out-of-control individual. An elder is sometimes required to handle highly emotional, conflict-driven situations and therefore it's necessary that he have control over his anger and not be easily provoked. If there is conflict in a church, an elder who is bad-tempered will not help diffuse the situation, but rather add fuel to the fire. If one has a warlike temperament, he is disqualified from this office. Unfortunately, dare I say... Many in Reformed evangelical circles seem to want to have pastors who have a warlike temperament. They admire preachers who are always looking for something to fight about. And instead, they should be admiring pastors for their gentleness, which is what Paul states next. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, which means this ought to characterize every Christian, but especially the leaders in the church. If one has cultivated gentleness in his life, then the two negatives here should take care of itself. To be gentle or mild is to know, according to Calvin, how to bear injuries with a gentle and moderate disposition, who forgives much, who passes by insults, who neither makes himself be dreaded through harsh severity, nor exacts with full rigor." Other words that help capture the fullness of this word are are words like kindness, graciousness, forbearing. A gentle man is patient and understanding of people's weaknesses and ignorance because of the sinful, fallen human plight. He knows how to bear with people's weaknesses and struggles. You see, quite often, pastoring is helping someone with the same struggle over and over and over again. And that requires a gentle, patient spirit. You may have seen that video all over the internet of uh, these men rescuing this sheep from this ditch. Have you seen that video? So he rescues the sheep from the ditch and then they let the sheep go and the sheep starts running and all of a sudden he falls right back into the ditch. That often is pastoring, digging the sheep out of the ditch and often The same ditch. Now, Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of a gentle, lowly spirit. The pastor, the shepherd, the elder gets his cue from the gentlest of shepherds. Next, he says, Not quarrelsome. To be not quarrelsome is really to be a peaceable man. God hates division within his body. Remember, in Proverbs 6, we're told that there are six things the Lord hates. And one of those things is a man who spreads strife among brothers. There are few things more destructive to a church than contentious, quarrelsome men. And therefore, it's essential that one's elders are peaceable men. I think Paul sums it up excellently in 2 Timothy two twenty-four to 25 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I think that so many people today think that it's okay to correct your opponents with harshness. But Paul says, correcting his opponents with gentleness, why? Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Matthew Arnold captures this section well when he refers to these three as sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. The next qualification he has is not a lover of money. Now we know that money in and of itself is not evil, but it's the power that money can have upon a person that is dangerous. There are plenty of false teachers primarily driven by their love for money. They prey on the vulnerable and the weak in the name of God in order to gain wealth. But an elder must flee from from all such things. See, though it is not wrong for a pastor to make his living off of his pastoring, which Paul speaks to later in this letter, it's essential that he keeps his heart from clinging to money or wealth. He must be a person eager to give and ready to help those in need if called upon by the Lord. The more he makes, the more generous he becomes. He's a man who desires to be rich toward God. You know, it's interesting, this problem with greed is not a modern problem. Micah 3.11 demonstrates that this wasn't a modern problem. That even in the Old Testament, the priests and the prophets and the leaders of Israel were corrupt and were greedy for money. This has always been a temptation by those in spiritual authority. Now after this, Paul then instructs that an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The idea here is... You need to be a man who leads and cares for your family. The key to discerning whether a man manages his household well is his children's behavior. That's what Paul alludes to, right? With all dignity, keeping his children submissive or obedient. It doesn't mean that his children are always obedient. The idea is that it's clear that his children respect and follow his lead and authority. He has invested his time and energy into his family. Also, when Paul says to do this with all dignity, that is, a father must have authority in the home, but he must use that authority wisely. He's not to crush his children. Paul tells fathers to ne- not to provoke his children to anger. A-, a good way to put it, I think, is there is such a thing as healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Children ought to have a healthy fear of their father. They understand he has authority over them, and there are lines that ought not be crossed. For example, growing up, I knew who was the boss. And all my mom had to do was say, if you don't change your behavior, I will tell your father when he comes home. It was very clear That my dad had the authority in the home, and I feared that. But a proper fear. I respected my dad. Now, I would have to argue that I was the best of the four kids, but um, my sister's here. That's why I'm saying that. so. So, children ought to have a healthy fear of their father. But they also, the fathers, also not be domineering and oppressive to their children. Yet fathers still need to use their authority to discipline their children and to do it with all dignity. And for a man to qualify for the role of an elder, he must be a man who knows how to lead and care for his family to make sure his children are obedient. I want to say this to the fathers. Both mom and dad have a role to play in the home. Both of them exercise authority over children and both discipline. But let me say this. Often, your wife, who is caring for your kids, is doing so much. The last thing she needs to be primarily responsible for is disciplining the children. You should be the one taking that responsibility and bearing the pain of having to discipline your children. It hurts to discipline your children. And if you don't want to feel hurt in yourself because it hurts to discipline your children, you are a negligent father. You are a negligent father. Your children need your chastisement, your discipline, your forming, your shaping of their lives. So, if you're a father, whether you aspire to be an elder or not, you should aspire to be the kind of father that manages his home, especially in the role of discipline. Now, the logic is pretty clear here, right? Paul makes it clear for why an elder must be able to manage his home. The household is a mini-church, so to speak. And if you can't manage your household, how on earth could you manage the church, Christ's household? As John Stott says, we cannot expect discipline in the local church if pastors have not learned to exercise it in their home. The argument is from the lesser to the greater. As Calvin says, he who is unfit for governing a family will be altogether unable to govern a people. The qualification number 13, he must not be a recent convert. And Paul tells us why a recent convert ought not be an elder, for he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. No matter how zealous and passionate for the Lord someone is, If they have been recently converted, they shouldn't serve as an elder. They may have zeal, but they most likely do not have the knowledge nor the character for such a role. Not only this, positions of authority and influence have the capacity to produce pride in the godliest of men. And a new convert does not have the spiritual maturity to navigate such positions of influence. Character and virtue takes time to develop, and therefore a new convert is not ready to bear such a responsibility. Now this reference to and fall into the condemnation of the devil can be taken either actively or passively. That is, Satan can be actively condemning you because of your arrogance... Or, it can mean that you're falling into the same condemnation of the devil, which was the sin of pride. Both can be alluded to, but I think the passive is probably more accurate. Do not let a recent convert serve as an elder, lest he become puffed up and conceited and fall into the same condemnation incurred by the devil. And then lastly, he says that an elder must be respected by outsiders. The last qualification alludes to a man having a good reputation among non-believers. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, we understand that there is a limitation to this. We know that the world will hate followers of Jesus. Jesus told us that. So if an elder stands for truth, he may not be well thought of by outsiders. But, in general, Paul's saying that a man should only serve as an elder if those unbelievers who know him have a high regard for him. That is, even though they do not believe, they see his life and think he's a good and trustworthy man. He conducts himself as a pastor ought to conduct himself. It would be concerning if you came to my hockey games on Sunday nights and my unbelieving teammates... Told you that I was always getting into fights and cursing on the ice and losing my temper. If that were the case, my teammates, though they might like me, they probably wouldn't see me as someone who should be in any kind of spiritual authority. Now, Paul tells us why this matters, so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. There are few things that the unbelieving world enjoys more than seeing someone morally compromised who has some kind of spiritual authority and influence within the church. You don't ever see the media celebrating faithful pastors. They will disgrace his name, but even worse, he may fall into the snare of the devil. Satan thrives off of chaos. And where a pastor has disgraced himself, Satan will do all the more to destroy and ruin him. So these are the qualifications that are required in order for someone to serve as an elder in the life of the church. And this means that any person who potentially may serve as an elder at Royal York must be evaluated according to these standards. Now, before I say anything more on elders, I want to briefly touch on deacons as well. I will not be as thorough here as there are some qualifications that overlap with that of elders. So the qualifications of deacons in verse 8 Paul lists four things that could all be placed under the category of self-mastery. Deacons likewise must be dignified, that is worthy of respect, not double-tongued, that is not speaking out of both sides of one's mouth, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, which is also mentioned in regards to the elders. He also says in verse 9 that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Really, the idea here is they must have orthodox convictions and hold to those convictions, but to do so with a clear conscience, in contrast to the false teachers that Paul describes in chapter 1 who destroyed their conscience. In other words, deacons must be individuals who hold to the faith in all sincerity before the Lord and the people. In verse 10, he requires that they should also be tested first. That is, they should be evaluated, and if they prove themselves to be blameless Above reproach like elders, they should then serve as deacons. Also, in verse 12, deacons should each be the husband of one wife and manage their homes just like the elder qualifications. And then in verse 13, he tells us that for those who serve well as deacons gain two things. They gain a good standing for themselves or an excellent standing. The idea is that they'll be regarded with honor in the esteem of God and the church. I think we see this all the time. I hear Christians all the time talking about servant-hearted, God-fearing Christians, and always speaking highly of those individuals. They've gained a good standing in the church, and a deacon who serves well will experience this as well. Not only that, but a deacon who serves well will have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The idea is that a deacon who serves well will grow in boldness before God and others. They won't be timid and insecure individuals. As they prove themselves through their service, they will grow in confidence and boldness, which I think should naturally happen when someone does well in the role they've been given. I hope that I've grown in confidence and boldness from when I first began here at Royal York to where I am now. Now, we need to go back and look at verse 11 as I just jumped over it. In your ESV translations, it says, their wives, that is, the wives of deacons, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. The ESV translates it as their wives, but I actually think it's better translated as the woman, the women, that is, women deacons. In the Greek, the word for women and wives is the same word. And so the context is what determines how to translate that word. Now, I'm not going to go into detail for why I think this is a reference to women deacons and not qualifications for the wives of deacons, okay? But I do want to say just a few things briefly. For one, the reason why I think this should be translated as women is that there is no definite article nor possessive in the Greek. So you see in your Bibles, if you have an ESC Bible, it says their wives. In the Greek, that word there is is not there. Okay? So you would think that if Paul was referring to the wives of deacons, he would have in the Greek their wives. Also, it doesn't make sense to me that there are qualifications for deacons' wives, but there are no qualifications for elders' wives you would think that Paul would have qualifications for an elder's wife, an elder's wife, especially because of the significance of the role of an elder, if he also provided qualification for a deacon's wife. And then also in Romans 16.1, Phoebe is referred to as a deaconess. It seems that in that uh, verse, Paul is actually ascribing a title to her. He's not simply saying she's a servant in the church. He's saying she is a deaconess in the church. Now, there is way more things that could be said for this. I don't have time to do that this morning, but if you want to look more into that, I'm happy to provide some resources for you. But here in in, in 1 Timothy 3, I think Paul is here referencing women deacons. He goes, he starts with male deacons, he then mentions women deacons, and then he goes back to male deacons. So these are the qualifications of elders and deacons. Now, we need to ask, what are the distinctions between the elders and deacons? What are the differences in roles? Well, here's the simplest answer. The New Testament seems to indicate that elders are the ones who have primary responsibility in teaching and exercising authority in the church. That is, leading and overseeing the church. The word overseer captures that. It's elders who are required to be able to teach. Deacons are not required to meet that qualification. Paul also says in chapter 5, verse 17, that elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. Whereas there's no reference in the New Testament to deacons ruling. Nowhere does Paul call the church to submit to their deacons. Elders have been given the primary responsibility of leading and shepherding the church as they are primarily responsible for teaching God's word. So then what is the role of the deacon? Well, to be honest, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of info on what deacons did. But here's what most agree upon. The word deacon itself is can be translated the word servant. And so most understand a deacon to be someone who helps And assists the elders in the ministries of the church based upon the word itself. In other words, they have been set apart as trustworthy individuals that the elders can lean upon so that the elders can devote their energy to prayer and the teaching of God's word. Now, all of us are called to be servants, but here's the honest truth not all of us are trustworthy with certain responsibilities. That's just the honest truth. And elders need individuals who have the same kind of character that they can trust with certain responsibilities in the church. Now, though I don't think Acts 6 is an outright reference to deacons, I think there is some truth in that story in regards to the offices of both elders and deacons. See, one of the issues in Acts was that division was taking place because of the neglect of the distribution of food between the widows. There was a practical need, but because that practical need wasn't being met, division was growing in the church. And so the apostles required that they find worthy men to be responsible for the distribution, and this was so that the apostles would not neglect the preaching of God's word, and that there wouldn't be conflict within the church. And I think there's a principle in this story that carries over to elders and deacons. See, the apostles are not with us anymore. But the role of elders or pastors is to teach the apostolic instruction to the saints. And in order for them to do this well, they need deacons, that is assistants, who care for the practical needs of the church with the goal of ultimately maintaining unity within the body. See, if if that was left to the elders, if that was left to me to care for all the practical needs of the church, I wouldn't be able to study 20 hours a week and be able to provide meaningful, helpful sermons. So with all that being said, we need to think about the implication of these 13 verses. What are the implications for us as a church and as individual Christians? Well, one... When it comes to leadership, God is far more concerned about character than he is about ability. All the qualifications except one speak to virtue and character rather than ability. Now, I'm not saying ability and competency doesn't matter. You need pastors who are able and competent. But the emphasis of the scriptures is that of character when it comes to those who leave the church. See, a church should never excuse the behavior of an elder because of his giftedness. A church should never excuse the behavior of an elder because of all the ways that God has worked through him. See, too often a pastor's behavior and lack of character will be excused because of all the wondrous things that God has done through him. But God has spoken through a donkey before, and it doesn't mean that a donkey should be your pastor. Character and virtue matter in the church of Jesus Christ. I love how Jonathan Lehman puts it, the New Testament spends far more ink on elder qualifications than on a job description, Because those qualifications are the job description. His job is to lit out the Christian life before the church in word and deed so that they can follow. Secondly, whether or not you aspire to either office, you should strive as a Christian to become the kind of person that is described here. And here's why. What's described here is simply what the Christian life ought to look like. I think it was Carson who said that the extraordinary thing about the qualifications of elders and deacons is just how ordinary they are. In that these qualifications are just describing what a godly Christian life looks like for the most part. So whether you aspire to the office of an elder or a deacon, you should strive to live according to these qualifications because you're a Christian saved by the blood of Jesus and have been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to walk in God's ways. You see, the fact that Paul lists these qualifications demonstrates that we as Christians can actually live like this. Too often we fall into this mindset that, oh, I'm a sinner and I can't can't live according to God's ways. No, no. Paul lists these qualifications demonstrating that there are Christians who can and do live according to these ways. And therefore, you and I, as followers of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, should strive to live like this, to try to be this kind of people before God and before the world. Thirdly, These qualifications demonstrate what we should be looking for in our spiritual leaders and celebrating. We're so easily captivated by ability and giftedness, and too often we look for that first before we look for virtue and character. Our heroes of the faith shouldn't be those who are the most gifted but rather the most holy. Men and women who shine forth the likeness of Jesus. Think about it this way. Why do you worship Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Here's why. You worship Jesus and follow Jesus fundamentally because of who he is. Jesus is gifted beyond measure. And he has incredible ability, supernatural ability. But what draws us to him first and foremost is the kind of man that he is. He is a man worthy to be followed. That's why we follow him. And that's why spiritual leaders in the church ought to reflect who he is. And of course, in a more limited capacity than him. God has given the church elders and deacons for the benefit of the church. And I want to encourage you, men of this church, I want to encourage you to aspire to be the kind of man described here. Men and women of this church, I want you to strive to be the kind of person that is described here in character and godliness. Be that kind of person for the sake of, of God and for the sake of his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this list in your scriptures of elders and deacons and what it means to be godly men and women. And I pray that each of us, Lord, would truly aspire Whether or not it's to the office of elder or or that of a deacon, that we would aspire to be the kind of people described here—people that reflect the likeness of Jesus, people that are well thought of by outsiders, people that are worthy of respect, people that have self-control and self-mastery over themselves—help us, Lord, in this task, and help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the greatest of all, the most pure and holy of all, the one who is worthy to be followed. We pray this in his name. Amen.